All right. Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our Bible study through the New Testament here right now in the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, I just also want to remind you that we are meeting in person right now here at Calvary Vista outside in our courtyard. It's a beautiful setting. It's been really, really nice. And um, if you haven't been yet to one of our outdoor gatherings, I really want to encourage you to come this Sunday. Um, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Psalms, God's playlist for our lives. And I'm going to be looking at Psalm 24, which is all about the glory of God. So we'd love to have you join us um, if you can. And if you can't, well, we will be pre-recording that study and a worship time for you. Um, and uh, that will be available via Calvary at Home uh, on Sunday as well at all three of our service times, 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11. But glad you're here with us tonight. Looking forward to our study. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll dive into this. Paul writes this. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. And let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God and one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask right now that you would meet us in this time as we study your word. I pray, Lord, that it would go forth um, over these airways in a, in a way that your spirit would just anoint it and empower it. And again, we thank you for this technology in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, 1 Corinthians is what Bible scholars refer to as a corrective epistle. You see, Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth to help correct and solve some problems that were going on in the church there. And so far, we've looked at chapters 1 through 6, where Paul is writing to address some problems that he had heard about. We read back in chapter 1 that there were some people that came from the house of Chloe, Chloe's house, whoever that was, and they came with some reports. I mean, they came basically saying, Paul, you should see what's going on in Corinth. It's not good. And whoever these people were, they must have been people of good reputation because the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this letter that is addressing these problems. And so he's addressing these problems that he's been told about, problems like division, Problems like Christians suing one another. Problems like there was this gross sexual immorality that was going on in the church. So that's chapters 1 through 6. But then in chapter 7, Paul switches gears and begins to answer questions that the Corinthians had asked him about in a letter that they wrote to him. Notice he says there in verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. Now here's the interesting thing. We do not have a copy of this letter. All we have are the answers that Paul gave. So it's sort of like jeopardy. 
We have the answers and we're trying to figure out the question. So Paul's sort of like, Alex, I'll take Corinth for a thousand. (laughs) But we have to guess what the question is. And the question that Paul's addressing here in chapter 7 might have been something like this. Paul, we live in this sex-crazed culture here in Corinth. You know that sexual immorality is rampant. And before we came to Christ, we knew what to do with people when we met them and when we found them and we knew, you know, um, we knew how to meet them, we knew what to do with them and we knew how to get rid of them when we were done with them. But now we're Christians. Now we're following Jesus. So how are we supposed to relate to members of the opposite sex prior to marriage? And what are we supposed to, you know, do? What, what's this whole thing, you know, supposed to look like? Intimacy and all that. What's that supposed to look like in the marriage context? Now, that might not have been the exact question that they asked Paul. But from the answers that we get here in chapter 7, we can tell the question was something like that. And so tonight, this is the title of my message, is we are going to talk about how the gospel relates to marriage and singleness. And we're actually going to answer this here in chapter 7 in three parts. Part 1 will be tonight. Next week, we'll look at part 2. We'll start talking a little bit more about marriage and divorce and and separation and that type of thing. And then finally, we'll look at this in um, a couple of weeks in part three. So part one, how does the gospel relate to marriage and singleness? Notice again, Paul writes in verse one, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, when Paul says that it's good for a man to not touch a woman, he's not talking about a casual handshake. He's not talking about a pat on the back. He's not talking about, you know, you accidentally brush up against somebody and, you know, you've got cooties or something like that. No, what he's talking about here is sexually. He's talking about being intimate with someone. He's talking about touching someone in a sexual manner. So tonight, we're going to break this down in two parts. We're going to first of all look at how the gospel is is meant to shape our marriages. And I have four points for you. And then we're going to look at after that how the gospel is meant to shape our singleness. So the first thing that I want you to note here is that, that God, number one, point number one, God created sex. And he created it for it to be, he meant for it to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship. You see, God created us, friends, with certain drives and appetites. For example, we can only go moments without air. We can only go a short time without water. And we can go a little bit longer without food. But those are all needs that we have. Those are all appetites that we are given. We thirst. We, we hunger. We, we need air. But we, those are all appetites and drives that God has given to us. But we also have other needs. We have a, been uniquely made, the Bible tells us, in the image of God. So we have been created for relationship with God and with others. We have this need built into us for love, for affection, for connection, and for acceptance. Those are all needs and drives that we have. And part of God's design is that men and women would connect on a sexual level in marriage. This is a drive that God has given to us, the sex drive. Sex was a part of God's blessing for man. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, there in verse 28, I'll read it to you. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it says this in verse 28. Then God blessed them. Note that. This is part of the blessing. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Now note that. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now let me just tell you guys, in case you didn't know, in case you still think babies come from storks, is that you can't be fruitful and multiply without having sex. 
And God's saying here that the sexual relationship was a part of his blessing for us. He blessed them and said, be fruitful. Now, I know there are those who would argue, but wait, 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 Pastor Rob, I mean, that's talking about procreation. And isn't that what sex is really for about procreation? You know, there, are, are, there, there was a time in the church, in the history of the church, where that's what they actually taught, especially over in England, that that was the only purpose for sex. I would beg to differ. And one of the reasons, although there are many reasons why I would differ biblically from that, but one of the reasons is found in this book in the Bible, a book that God has inspired. I mean, it's part of the canon of Scripture. It's the book called the Song of Solomon. And get this, that book talks a lot, and I mean a lot, about the relation, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, it goes into graphic detail about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, such detail that some Jewish rabbis taught that a man should not even read the book of, of Song of Solomon until he's 30 years old. That's how graphic it was. But here's what's interesting about the book of Song of Solomon. The book talks a lot about intimacy It talks a lot about the sexual relationship between the husband and the wife and how it is to be enjoyed. There are eight chapters in the book and there's not one reference in the entire book about kids. Not one reference. Why? Because God is teaching us that he gave man the sexual relationship to happen between a husband and wife, to be a blessing in that marriage relationship, that this was part of God's original design. And so this is the first thing that that we want to note here as we dive into this subject is that God created sex. But here's point number two. God created sex, but sin ruined God's original design. You see, we are a fallen people. And we live in a fallen world. Now, it's important that you understand the implications of that statement. You see, sometimes people like to think that they are good. They're good people. But the problem is we live in this fallen world. We live in this world that is bad. And because we live in this fallen world, it's really, really hard to be good. That's not the proper view of humanity biblically after the fall. You see, the Bible teaches that when sin entered into the world, that it didn't just affect the world, but it affected us. There wasn't just external effects, there were also internal effects, to the point where we became broken, and the impulses that God had given to us, the appetites and drives that God had given to us in the beginning of creation, the the, the impulses that he put within us, they have also become broken by sin. For instance, we have this drive for food, and it's a wonderful drive. I mean, think about it. God made you with a sense of smell. Who doesn't like, I guess maybe if you're a vegan, who doesn't like, though, you know, the the smell of just steak burning on the grill, just cooking on the grill? I mean, it's, it's glorious. He gave us this sense of smell. Or who doesn't like to walk in the house and smell just fresh baked goods, you know, cooking or being baked there in the kitchen. It's just glorious. And he made us with taste buds, these glorious just taste buds to to be able to taste things. I mean, what if you couldn't smell and what if just everything tasted bland? And the only, you know, point in eating was just to, you know, energize and fuel your body. I mean, that would be horrible. But God, because he says, I created food. Remember last week, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. God created food and created you to enjoy food. But here's, here's what happened. Here's, here's what sin does. Sin takes this normal drive for food and it, lead, and, it, and it distorts it so that it leads to things like gluttony, bulimia, anorexia, that type of thing. We have this drive for relationships. And we have, you know, we've been created, as I said, to live in, in connection and relationship with, with other people. 
But God, or the sin takes that natural drive and distorts it. So now we're, we're fallen people living in a fallen world and our relationships get affected so that now we, in relationships, we have things like jealousy. We have things like codependency. We have things like abuse. God's made us with this natural drive for sex. But sin and the fallenness of our world has taken this natural thing that God meant to be a blessing in the marriage relationship and they've perverted it and they've taken it out of the marriage relationship and sex becomes more about using others. It it, it becomes more about seeing how someone else is going to and how somebody else can fulfill me. And it leads to sexual immorality. It leads to pornography. It leads to prostitution. It leads to um, even greater perversion of what God designed in the sexual relationship. And it leads to a greater perversion in, in things like homosexuality and lesbianism. This is what Paul you know, un, or, or unpacks for us there in Romans chapter 1. When he says this, because... Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and, and creeping things. And so Paul's saying, because they wouldn't acknowledge God, even though they knew that you know he existed, they wouldn't acknowledge him really as God. It was like, you're not going to rule over us we're going to do what we want to do and so it led to idolatry and the result of that God says look you want to live to please yourself instead of pleasing me have at it go for it see what happens and then the next thing Paul tells us is this therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. In other words, not the way they were designed. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful in the eyes of God and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So that's what sin does to this beautiful, wonderful drive called sexual intimacy that God has given to us. And so Paul is writing to these believers in Corinth who, like us, were living in a culture that was just full of sexual perversion. It was rampant with sexual immorality. They had pornography. It was rampant with adultery and prostitution and fornication and homosexuality. And I'm sure they had their own form of, you know, sex trafficking, And Paul is wanting them to understand how the gospel, though, redeems what sin has ruined. And that's point number three. The gospel redeems, it buys back, it reestablishes, we might say, what sin has distorted. You see, the impact of the gospel... In our following Jesus, when we come and we give our lives to Jesus, this is what we learn, is that the marriage relationship is the proper setting where sexual intimacy and enjoyment is to take place. Again, notice what Paul says. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, when he says have, he's not just saying have a wife and having a husband, but he's talking about having them sexually, intimately. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. So, here's the question. How do you survive in a sex-crazed culture? Paul, how do we survive? And Paul says, get married. Enjoy each other sexually. But I also want you to note here that, that Paul says, let a husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Now that word affection, 
It's a broad word. In fact, there's an author by the name of Gary Chapman who wrote a book years ago called The Five Love Languages. And, and in that book, he, he was talking about, you know, five ways of showing affection to your spouse. And, and he kind of, you know, wrote in the book the idea that all of us sort of, you know, as individuals have a primary love language, a way that we like to be loved and a way that we like to express love. And although we might also show, you know, love in all five of these ways, his point was there's a primary way that, that's kind of ingrained into each one of us, the way that we've been wired by God. And so the five love languages are time and attention. So it's the idea of, you know, hey, get off your phone and be fully engaged with your spouse. Um, the second one is giving of gifts. You know, just just blessing one, bringing home flowers, guys. You know, uh, just doing things to bless one another in that way. Uh, number three is words of affirmation. It's complimenting, encouraging. It's verbal affection. It's it's telling your husband that you appreciate him and that that you respect him, and t- telling your wife that you appreciate her and that you love her. Number four is acts of service, and that's you know doing things for them, practical type of things. And then number five is physical touch or physical affection. And the key to marriage is discovering what is your spouse's primary love language and seeking to love them in that way. So Paul here in our text, when he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband, the word he uses for affection is Paul's relating to that last physical or that last love language number five the physical touch or physical or sexual intimacy and Paul uses this word render which can also be actually translated reward reward her with the affection that is due her reward him with the affection that is due him but I want you to notice a couple of things here first of all I want you to know that Paul mentions the husband's responsibility first and then the wife let the husband render to his wife the affection due her Why does he mention the husband first? I believe the reason is because that's how God created marriage. It's the picture. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about this, that the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife is a picture of God's relationship or Jesus' relationship with the church. And we're told there that, that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church in that he gave himself for her. Husbands, love your wife the same way that Jesus did. And we know in our relationship with Jesus that our love for him is really a response to his love for us. We didn't love him first. No, he first loved us, the Bible says. We responded to that love. And so when Paul says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, he's saying that the, the same thing happens. When, when a husband is loving his wife well, the wife is going to respond to his love for her. In that same way, she responds back with, with love. She responds back with, with, with respect. Now, this is what guys often miss, though, in the marriage relationship, especially when it comes to the idea of sex. And again, Paul's saying, husbands, saying here first, you're setting the pace, you're setting the example. Render to the wife, reward the wife with the affection that is due her. And you know, it's been said that, that when it comes to sex, that a guy is like a microwave. It takes just a couple of minutes for him to get heated up. But a woman is more like a crock pot. It takes time and uh, it can be a slower process. It's been said that, you know, sexual intimacy... For the woman can start in the morning with a hug and a little kiss. It can follow uh, on in the afternoon with a nice little text. And it's this idea of, of you know, Paul, Paul I, I think here, the idea is, 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 it's, is saying, hey, it takes romance. She needs to feel safe and she needs to feel valued. 
So we can interpret this passage that Paul is saying, hey, husband, give your wife the affection that is due her to mean figure out the way that she needs to be loved and show her that kind of affection. In other words, figure out, find out what your wife's love language is. You know, Peter told us to dwell with our wives in understanding. I'll give you an example. You know, my wife, her love language is acts of service. Problem is, my wife did not marry a handyman. I'm not very, you know, uh, handy with tools and that type of thing. And, and her dad was a carpenter, so you, know, you can, you know, understand. I was a bit intimidated when we came into our marriage relationship. But thank God for YouTube. Because there's all these handymen on YouTube that put out these videos that show you how to do things. And you know what? I've got, I've learned to be kind of handy. And my wife just loves it. She gets really, really encouraged when uh, I take on a, a project. And, and I'm speaking. I mean, she'll post things on Instagram. My husband, take a picture of me, you know, laying on a floor or something. My husband's speaking my love language. Now, this is what's interesting. One of the interesting things I find about Song of Solomon is the woman. This is what's interesting in this book. Don't, don't miss this. The woman in the book is expressing her sexual desire often for her husband. Often. But what's interesting is it always comes after Solomon has taken the time to be with her and to invest in that relationship. So I, I think in that picture, God's trying to tell us something, men, that we need to understand the importance of building our relationship with our spouse, learning their love language, learning how to dwell with them in understanding. And the picture that Song of Solomon paints is that the wife is responding to Solomon with sexual desire after he's learned how to do that, how to speak her love language, we might say. Now, this principle that God created sex to be expressed and enjoyed in marriage is actually built on a deeper principle that is connected to the gospel. And this is the principle we see in verse 4. Notice, he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Here's the principle. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. So give yourself for the betterment of another. Now, before you push back on that, especially any feminists that might be watching right now, and I just, you know, you're starting to get a little heated by this, understand, don't miss this. Don't miss this, ladies. This is a basic principle of Christianity. The Bible declares that you and I, we no longer belong to ourselves. In fact, look back at the last verse of chapter 6. Verse 20, the one that just leads right into this whole conversation here in chapter 7. Paul wrote this, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Notice that. Your body is not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to God. You belong to him. You've been bought with a price. Peter says we've been bought not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, there was nothing on this planet that was valuable enough to redeem you and I from the bondage of sin and to restore us into relationship with God. So God stepped out of heaven in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and came to this earth and became a man so that he could go to a cross where his blood would be shed so that he could redeem us, so he could buy us back. So you and I, we have been blood-bought. And Paul says, look, you belong to God. So therefore, glorify God in your body. Think of it this way. You wouldn't even think of going over to your neighbor's house and going into his garage and borrowing his tools or his car, let's say, without asking. You, you, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because those things belong to your neighbor. You need his permission before you seek to use them. Well, in a similar way, Paul is saying, look, your body belongs to God and you need his permission on how to use your body. 
And here, Paul applies that same principle to the marriage relationship when he says, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs first to the Lord, because you've been bought with a price, and then secondly, it belongs to your spouse. And so this basic principle of Christianity is that we are to live like Jesus in seeking to build up others and meet the needs of others. And this is point number four, is the gospel points us to the principle of preference. And we see a wonderful picture of this in the book of Philipp- in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is an amazing book. The theme of it is joy, but chapter 2 is a great marriage passage, although a lot of people never see it that way. But I want to read to you um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness, humility is the idea there, in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interest of others. Notice this. Paul says, hey, in humility, esteem others as better than yourself. Well, what if they're not better than me, you might say. <laughs> well, that's where the humility comes in. You know, It's putting away your pride. And coming to that place, like, okay, I'm going to esteem them. The word esteem is the idea is to value others. And the way that you esteem them as better than yourself is by putting the needs of others above your own. You see, in marriage, the husband is to esteem his wife, to put her needs above his own. The wife is to esteem her husband. And Paul says one of the ways that we do that, notice that again he says, look, let, let each look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Now, why would I want to do that, you might say? Here's why. Because it blesses God, number one, and it's going to bless your spouse, number two. But here's the thing, and here's what I want you to catch. Here's what I want to challenge you on. Get, t- take a month. Take a month. This is my challenge. Take a month and, and try this. You start to show interest in the things that your spouse is interested in. And this is the amazing thing that happens. When you start showing interest in the things that interest your spouse, this is what happens. You'll find that you'll start getting interested in those things as well. You'll start getting interested in the things that interest your spouse. I'll give you an example. I like watching football especially college football. But when Denise and I got married, she, she had no interest in watching football. But because she loves me and because she loves the Lord and, and she kind of knew this principle, she came to a place where like, okay, I, I need to show some interest in football, especially because she knows that my primary love language is time and attention. So she started sitting down and, you know, watching football games with me. And guess what happened? She started to get interested in it. She started to follow it. She started to kind of enjoy it. She started getting to the point where she was getting fired up. I mean, she'd be yelling at the television, you know, and screaming, come on, go. And sometimes I had to tell her, Denise, I'm rooting for the other team. <laughs> you know, come on, get on board with me here and the root for the right team. But, you know, she made that choice. To get interested in something that I was interested in. And she found herself getting interested in it too. And you know what happens? When two people start to do this. When two people you know, get, get this. And they come to this place where they're like. Okay I'm not just going to look out for my own interest. But I'm going to start looking out for the interest of my spouse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to esteem my spouse as better than myself and, and to value them. And, and, and the way I'm going to do that is by just starting to get show interest in the things that they are interested in. When two people, both of them start to do that, it's amazing. It's like watching two people who really know how to dance. You ever seen that? I mean, not, not two people that are, you know, trying to do the funky chicken or something, but two people that, that are just really, really, I mean, they, they know how to dance. I mean, they're like ballroom dancing or whatever. I mean, it's beautiful. It's graceful. It's contagious. I mean, it makes you like, just want to go, I, I want to go take classes. I want, I want to learn how, how to do that. It's, it's, it has a contagious and an inviting type of effect. Now, what's interesting is there in Philippians, Paul goes on to say, guys, This is the example of Jesus. 
This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He esteemed our need as better than his own comfort. And so he chose to leave heaven and become like one of us so that he might come to this earth and and he might redeem us. He gave up his body literally to the cross in order to bless us and save us and advance us. And Paul says, so let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or to put it another way, Paul's saying, hey, you seek to live by that same principle. Your body, your life doesn't belong to you. You've been bought with a price. So you are to give yourself your body in order to bless others. And in marriage, this gospel principle is connected to the marriage bed and the sexual relationship. That it is to be a regular and wonderful part of a marriage relationship. Now, notice in verse 5, Paul says this, Do not deprive one another, except with consent. The idea there is both agreeing for a time. That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come back together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I know you've heard of food fast. Well, Paul's here talking about a sex fast. And that they would refrain from the sexual relationship for a time, for a little season, in order to seek the Lord through fasting and prayer and together become closer to the Lord. But notice he says, for a time. Now I ask you this question, how long do most people fast? Maybe a few days, maybe a week. Paul's literally saying, don't fast too long in this area. Couples that are like, we've been fasting 10 years in that era. No, and here's why. It can open up the door to greater temptation. Satan is going to play on your lack of self-control, Paul says. So the first thing, the first picture that Paul paints here is how the gospel shapes our marriage relationship that married couples realize that they belong to God. And, and because of that, the part of the way that, that the blessing that God has created is he's created this sexual relationship and that they bless each other and they bless the Lord by giving themselves to each other in that way, in the same way that Jesus gave himself for us. A sacrifice, a willingness to put others above himself. So that's how the gospel relates to the marriage relationship seen here in 1 Corinthians 7. But, but what about singleness? How does the gospel, how is it meant to shape our singleness? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. I say this as a concession. The idea behind that is, I say this with permission, um, but this is not a command. Now, Paul repeats this kind of idea several times in this chapter. In fact, look at verse 10. He says, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So in other words, he's saying, what I'm about to say right now, this is something that Jesus said. I'm just repeating what Jesus said. But then if you look at verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. And so here's what Paul is saying in verse 6 and verse 12. He's saying, look, this is not a command from Jesus. However, what I'm about to say is no less inspired by God. Paul's saying, look, Jesus didn't say anything about what I'm about to say. But right now, I'm still speaking under the inspiration of God. In other words, I'm not just giving you my opinion. But what I'm going to say is... Not exactly what Jesus said. But I want you to know, Paul is not contradicting what Jesus said in any way. And he's not even taking away from what Jesus said in any way. But this is what he's doing. He's expanding on what Jesus said. Okay? So that's the idea behind this. When he says, but I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God. And one in this manner and another in that. Paul says this. Look, I I wish you were all like me. Now here's what's interesting about Paul. Paul was not married. 
But we do know that he was married at one time. Because in, in Acts chapter 26, Paul's giving his testimony. And prior to coming to Christ, he talks about being a part of the religious ruling class and having a vote, which would mean that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It was that group of men, 70 rulers, religious rulers there in Israel. And a requirement to be a part of the Sanhedrin is you had to be married. So the question is, what happened to Paul's wife? Well, maybe she died. But many Bible scholars believe that she left him after he became a Christian. And Paul never sought to get married again. And so Paul says this, I wish all men were like me, not married. Now, why would Paul say that? Is Paul down on marriage? Not at all. Paul was not down on marriage, but listen, he was up on the gospel. Paul knew what Jesus said. Paul knew that Jesus said, hey, guys, the harvest is ripe. Harvest is ripe. It's ready to be picked. There's souls out there that need to hear the gospel. The problem is the labors are few. And Paul knew that when it comes to the proclaiming and spreading of the gospel, single people can get more done. And for that reason, Paul is saying singleness is not to be castigated, but celebrated. Sometimes the single people in the church, they get, they get a knock on them when in reality, you guys who are single have the opportunity to be used in such an incredible way by the Lord. Single people have the potential to be way more effective for the Lord than married people. You know why? Because they have more time and they have less distractions. In fact, Paul's going to talk about this a little later in the chapter. We'll we'll do a little preview right now. Skip down to verse 32. Paul says this, But I, I want you to be without care. And he who is unmarried, this is the problem, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. That's not a problem, that's a blessing, okay? He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, his family, his wife, and his kids, and how he may please his wife, how he may please his family. And there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, her family and her husband, and how she might please them. So this is what Paul's saying. Those who are not married, those who are single, they have less distractions. And they they have an ability to be way more focused on and way more time and way more opportunity to serve the Lord. You know, when I was single, it was just me and God. And you know, I, I was I did so much back then. But then you get married and suddenly you have this other person now in your life. And you have to be, you know, concerned about it. You have to be sensitive to, okay, you know, should we go to this place? And, you know, is Denise going to really like this? Is this going to be okay for her, you know, type of thing? Now, I love my wife, and she's incredible. And we, we dated for about six months. And we met serving the Lord, and we dated all serving the Lord. And for the first three years of our marriage, we're without kids. And we devoted ourselves, man, 24-7 to serving Jesus. I was a youth pastor here at this church, actually. I was also the young adult pastor here at that time. So I'm doing junior high, high school, young adults, doing, doing all of that. And what, what, what that meant was we were actually in, involved in ministry seven nights a week. So I'm working five days a week. I'm out seven nights a week. But you know what? Denise was with me. She was my partner. She was involved in it. And, and all of that with me, and we loved it. We were so focused on serving and enjoying it, but we were so involved and so busy that our pastor, Pastor Brian Broders at that time, he literally had to pull me aside, and he said to me, Rob, I do not want you to come to the Sunday night service. Imagine that, the pastor saying to another pastor, I don't want you to be here. And he said, the reason is because is you need a night off with Denise, so don't come to Sunday night service. I don't want to see you here. Now, we obeyed. We did that even though we didn't feel like we needed to because we were having so much fun serving the Lord together. But then our son Aaron was born and that changed everything. Now I'm out six nights a week without Denise 
and Denise is at home with our baby. And I started to experience what Paul was saying here. I started caring about the needs of my wife more. I found myself literally at times being at a ministry event and in my heart going, I don't really want to be here right now. I want to be home. I want to be home with my wife and my son. And that's what happens when you have a family. And so Paul says, I wish you were all like me. And Paul chose a life of celibacy for the sake of the gospel. And Paul thought, we need more people who can be wholly committed to the gospel. But notice also what he says here in verse, the end of verse 7. He says, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Here's the thing. Paul saw his ability, don't miss this. Paul saw his ability to be single as being a gift from the Lord. And Paul came to a place where he either no longer had a desire for sexual intimacy or he was just able to keep it in check. And I think that it all stemmed from his mindset that he wrote about there in verse 20 of chapter 6. My body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And so I want to glorify God with my body. And Paul saw that just as his gift. But Paul was also well aware that not every single person has that gift. So then he says here in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. Now notice, Paul's celibacy, his gift, also involved an exercising of self-control. So I'm not just, I I say that just to say, I don't think it was like just this, you know, necessarily this thing where he just never had these urges anymore. But part of his gift was he, he learned how to keep that in check. And Paul says here, but even if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says to the single folk, if your sexual drive And desire is going to be a constant distraction for you in walking with Jesus and serving Jesus where you're constantly being tempted. It would be better for you to get married than to burn with passion. In other words, he's saying, look, singleness is not the gift for everyone. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. But Paul's saying, look, That gift is maybe not for anyone. Now, I want you to note something here of the context of verse 9. Paul is talking in contrast here about marriage and singleness. That's what he's doing here. His contrast is which is better. And he's kind of painting a picture that for the gospel's sake, singleness is better. But if sexual desire is a distraction for you in serving Jesus, he's saying, look, by all means, Get married. Now, I I point that context out again for this reason. This verse, verse 9, has been used by single people who get involved in premarital sex. And they feel like, you know, they, they can't stop having sex. And so I've heard single people say this. They'll say, I guess we should just get married because it's better to marry than to burn. And I've seen Christian people rush into marriage before they were ready based on this principle. Well, it's better to marry than to burn. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking in the context here of two people who are already involved sexually who can't get a handle on their passions. Because Paul, he would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 these words, for this is the will of God. Note that, that's a heavy thing. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's what he's saying. You know God. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are a follower of Christ. And God's Holy Spirit is going to prompt you and convict you and empower you. And because of that, Paul says, you should know how to control your own body in sanctification. In other words, you should know how to control your own desires. You should have, know how to have that self-control to walk in holiness 
And listen, listen to me right now. If you're watching right now and you're a, you're a couple, Christian couple, you're not married and you're engaged sexually and you've been thinking, you know, wow, maybe we just need to get married and, and, you know, better to marry than to burn. Listen, listen to me. It would be better for you right now to break up. Yeah, I just said that. It would be better for you to break up right now and individually grow in the Lord. Because here's the deal. If God really, really wants you guys to be together and you're both growing in the Lord and you're growing to him, you know what happens? You take a, it's like a triangle. And you take a triangle, you're on one end and she's on the other end and God's at the top. What happens when you start you know, growing, you start getting closer to the Lord, that triangle gets uh, closer and those, those sides get closer and closer as you get to the top. The more that you get closer to the Lord, the more you're going to get closer to one another. And God will show you if you're supposed to be together. But to just jump into a marriage relationship because you can't control yourself sexually would be a huge mistake. And as a pastor, I have counseled way too many couples who went down that road and had incredible um, problems because of it. So, Paul is talking here as we wrap up tonight. How does the gospel shape our marriages and singleness? Well, we understand that our lives, including our bodies, belong to God. They've been bought with a price. And we're to glorify God with our bodies. We're to glorify God with our lives. In marriage, we do that by serving our spouse and giving them the affection that is due them, by preferring their needs above my own, as we see that example in Jesus. In my singleness, again, I understand my life, my body are not mine. They belong to the Lord. And I want to I glorify God with my life. And I want to honor the Lord. And part of the way that I do that is by living pure, recognizing and understanding as well that God has given me time and resources that can be used for the furtherance of the gospel. And I got to tell you this, friends, there is nothing better that the, and in the end of a day or the end of the week just feeling completely spent, but spent in serving the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, married or single, glorify the Lord in your bodies. Married folks, man, glorify the Lord in your relationship with one another, preferring one another, loving one another, serving one another, giving yourselves, taking a hold of that blessing that God has given to us in, in the sexual relationship and, 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 and engaging in that. For those of you who are single, glorify God in your body. Honor Him. And if you are one who maybe has been given that gift, and you don't really have that desire for companionship. I know a few people like that. Use your time to serve the Lord. But hey, if that's not you, start praying. God, show me who's to be my wife. And show her too. Sometimes guys come, God, show me you're supposed to be my wife. And, and uh, they're like, well, you didn't show me that. So pray that God shows her that too. And uh, brings you together. Show ladies, show, show God, you know, start praying for your husband. And let God bring that together. But overall, married or single, hey, let's glorify God and honor God with our lives.